From the top of Porcupine Butte, Pine Ridge Reservation unfolds in loping hills and clusters of pine trees. On a clear day, the grasslands stretch like waves beyond the horizon. Here you can see everything, says Paisley Sierra. This is one of her favorite places on the reservation, somewhere she can breathe deeply and find peace. A member of the Oglala Lakota Nation, Sierra grew up on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. It's home to nearly 20,000 people and is one of the poorest communities in the U.S. The Lakota people were forced under the reservation by the U.S. government in the 1890s. They were once stewards of millions of acres of prairie across the Dakotas and into Montana. Now, Pine Ridge Reservation measures fewer than 3,500 square miles. Lakota history is punctuated by battles for their land, their water, their very way of life. The Lakota people are not alone. In the U.S. and Canada, many indigenous communities face a toxic mix of ecological and social destruction. On this episode of AMDG, we'll hear from Indigenous leaders on the front line of this crisis in the United States and Canada. My name is Megan Leipsch and I'm your guest host this week. I work in the Jesuit Conference Office of Justice and Ecology. We advocate for social justice on Capitol Hill and in federal institutions. Environmental justice is one of our top priorities. But sometimes it's tricky to tell stories about environmental issues. Climate change is a defining crisis of this generation, and I think it makes people feel powerless. That's why I wanted to talk to Paisley Sierra. She's an environmental activist and a graduate of Red Cloud Indian School, a Jesuit school on Pine Ridge. I think Sierra's cultural heritage offers a radically different way of envisioning the human relationship with creation. In our globalized and industrial world, we see the earth as our resource, something we can control, harvest, dispose. It's a model of ruthless exploitation, and it doesn't work. I asked Sierra to describe what's different about her community. I live on the Pioneer Reservation. It is known as one of the poorest reservations, like, in the country. Poorest counties, you know. But... Uh, to describe it not in like that way <laughs> would be just to say that like because of like our culture and our belief systems we are very close so like everyone knows everyone like I could walk into a store and everyone would probably know my name or at least my parents or something and that is something like I realized doesn't happen very often outside of the reservation and I think that's probably one of the best things about my community like it's not just a impoverished community it's way more than that I have been tied in my culture ever since I was born we were taught to respect everything and that everything has a meaning and that we are no greater than any other life form everything has a purpose in itself everything balances with everything else and I think my culture really helped me acknowledge that that balance in life and that spiritual spiritual energy and everything as well. Being at Red Cloud really helped me like become more informed on like actual activism and um, issues, so environmental injustices and just social injustices issues, which helped me tie back into it. 
There's a phrase in the Lakota language that encapsulates this spiritual balance, miniwichoni, water is life. This was a rallying cry during the Standing Rock protests, as members of the Sioux Nation fought the construction of a pipeline through their water source in sacred lands. For Sierra, water is life is like a mandate. Water is life just means that at the center of all things, water, water is what keeps us alive. Like, it's purification. For our ceremonies, we use water for purification. It's what ties us back to this sense of reality, not just up in the spirit, like spiritual energy. It ties us back to, like, we got to take care of our body because the water, or water helps us stay alive and stay healthy and to be able to fulfill our purpose on this world. Water is at the center of all things, yet Sierra's community must fight for this most essential resource. On the reservation, clean, drinkable water is precious. Sometimes it's rare. One third of the people on Pine Ridge lack access to electricity, water, or sewage systems. Many families haul their own water from community wells or untreated rivers. Those on the water system receive water through outdated asbestos cement pipes. In the spring, flooding and snowmelt can cause septic tanks to overflow into the muddied ground. Water contamination is a huge concern. Uranium and gold mining contribute to these worries. Companies mine these resources in the Black Hills, which is sacred and ancestral land for the Lakota. The tribe has fought against mining in the hills for spiritual and health reasons. Community aquifers are sometimes contaminated by uranium. We had a scare at my house because there was uranium and lead in it. And so we had to get it cleaned and we had to filter it out. I think that's a big problem on the reservation because a lot of people don't, don't know that like their water might be contaminated, so they just drink it. And then you get the testing done and it's not very healthy. One of the biggest threats to clean water on Pine Ridge is the Keystone XL pipeline. The pipeline would stream up to 830,000 barrels of tar sands oil per day from Alberta, Canada, through Montana, South Dakota, and Nebraska. The proposed route intersects indigenous lands and water sources. At Red Cloud, teachers and students alike worried about the pipeline. And I remember in the moment when we were talking about Keystone XL, I was like, I was scared. Like, I was scared that my water is going to be contaminated like that. And I did not know what to do. It's never been smart to me to put a pipeline of oil running through water. Because it just, that amount of pressure mixed in with the pressure from the water could cause a rupture. And then it could just, it's just... SOL for everyone else. Last year, the Keystone leaked over 383,000 gallons of oil into the wetlands of North Dakota, and that was just in one spill. Through Red Cloud, Sierra has voiced her concerns on water contamination with public officials. Last fall, a group of students and faculty met with South Dakota Senator Thune to ask about safety precautions for the Keystone XL and to push for renewable energy alternatives. I think in a perfect in a perfect scenario, we wouldn't need oil, and we would have renewable energy, and we didn't want to have to worry about pollution or contamination. But then again, we live in 2020, where it non-renewable is the energy source we go for. And I really want that to change. Like, that's my one wish, is for people to finally understand that, hey, the environment is dying, so... We should probably do something with all this money that we have to save it. 
Keystone XL's owner, TC Energy, claims the pipeline will inject $8 billion into the U.S. economy. The company has also funneled millions of dollars into political lobbying to win support for the pipeline, according to a report from the CBC. The reservations have seen virtually none of that cash flow. Pine Ridge is chronically under-resourced and lacks infrastructure. Some communities have small grocery stores, but the biggest and most affordable supermarket is two hours away from where Sierra lives in Porcupine. The Indian Health Service runs a small hospital on the reservation, but for most appointments, people drive up to Rapid City. The unemployment rate hovers between 80 and 90%. Most people struggle with isolation and mental health issues. The issues facing reservations today are like interlocking blocks. They build on each other, forming a wall nearly impossible to penetrate. Poverty and generational trauma are at the foundation of this blockade. The big one that everything else roots from is poverty. That's the biggest issue on the situation. It's, it's hard to find jobs here, and it's hard to keep jobs because of also mental health issues that are just rooted from generational trauma and everything that has happened to us. So it's really hard to try to find your footing here. So that's why poverty is such a big problem. Because like as though even though we are a family community, it's also hard to, like we also don't understand this gener generational trauma because we're all going through it at the same time. So it's like it's hard to help each other out when we're all going through our own issues. The reservation was built off colonization. So it kind of discouraged everyone from speaking up and using their voices to um, to be better. And so we're all kind of just in this shell, like me included, I'm not excluding myself, in this shell of like discouragement and anxiety and just a lot of mental health problems that we don't want to change or do anything like drastically. So I want I want that to flip for us to not be so scared of change and not so scared of like, someone coming in and taking it from us, you know? Because that's always in the back that's always in the back of my head. So I know it's in, always in the back of someone else's head. Like that someone is just gonna take all of our things away from us. Indigenous history is scarred by this theft of life and culture. In the late 1800s, tribes across the Great Plains resisted US government attempts to strip them of their ancestral lands. Those who were not massacred were forced onto reservations by treaties treaties which the U.S. government would go on to break. Protected tribal lands were whittled away, handed over to agricultural development and mining. Indigenous children were ripped away from their communities, sent to residential boarding schools where they were forced to assimilate. They were forbidden to speak their native languages or learn about their cultures. The programs were catastrophically effective. Today, fewer than 6,000 people speak the Lakota language. The Jesuits ran one such residential boarding school in Canada. So the idea behind the Indian residential schools was basically to, to it was an aspect of colonization. It was to try to take Indian or indigenous children and make them in, culturally into white Canadians. So that meant uh, taking them away from their families and communities. Um, preventing them mostly from speaking their own languages. Basically, it was a, it was a policy to take away the cultures of the uh, indigenous children 
cultural genocide, at least that's certainly part of the, uh, the Jesuit view on this. We had one of those schools, uh, St. Peter Claver School in Spanish Ontario, which is on the uh, shore of Georgian Bay, the north shore of Lake Huron. That's Father Peter Bisson. He's a Canadian Jesuit who is involved in Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The TRC formally recognized the ways in which the Canadian government and Canadian religious organizations had committed cultural genocide against Indigenous peoples. During the TRC process, alumni of the St. Peter Claver School began to come forward with stories of abuse. Father Bisson says the Jesuits reacted, quote, defensively to these allegations. He says they weren't listening. So alumni started taking the Jesuits to court. It was a moment of reckoning that forced the Jesuits to listen. Father Bisson says there were a lot of consistencies in the allegations. After initial resistance and indignation, the Jesuits came to recognize that many of the stories were true and offered restitution. Father Bisson says participating in the TRC was, quote, a big part of our own growth and reconciliation and the beginnings of our own processes of decolonization. He told me that he knows this process has changed him. He first went to these meetings as the Canadian provincial. He wore his collar and jacket like he would for any official meeting. And I quickly realized this was a big mistake uh, because being there in a Roman collar was a trigger for uh, many people of, of nasty experiences in residential schools. So I tried to dress down, take the tab out, take my jacket off, things like that. So I, on the one hand, I realized that many Indigenous people were very uncomfortable around me, but at the same time, I realized that no one, no one insulted me, no one was being rude, and some were even trying to welcome me. Well, that really broke my heart. The TRC has formally ended, but the work is just starting, says Father Bisson. He continues to work with Indigenous partners to heal these relationships. The first step is listening. Father Bisson says that in the past, the Jesuits didn't listen to the needs of Indigenous communities. Often, the Jesuits decided for them. Now, Jesuit ministries are following Indigenous leadership to address issues. So, to, to take the language of Laudato Si, um, where the Pope advocates an integral or holistic ecological conversion, we're starting to recognize that we cannot have an ecological conversion that is holistic or integral without indigenous spirituality, uh, indigenous wisdom, and indigenous partners. So that's a, a significant shift, but it's also another example of indigenous voices having a concrete impact on how the Jesuits are trying to do things in Canada. This process of healing requires everyone to do their spiritual push-ups, Father Bisson told me. And progress will be slow, but I think it's the only way forward. In North America, most of us live on stolen indigenous land. We have an obligation to make that right, to apologize, make reparations, and return indigenous autonomy which shouldn't have been taken away in the first place. Despite the TRC process, many indigenous groups in Canada still face environmental threats. It's a connection shared among indigenous communities in North America, embodied by pipelines that run between their lands. 
I talked with Sister Priscilla Solomon about oil development on First Nations lands. She's a Catholic nun and a member of the Canadian Ojibwe First Nation. Governments treat oil as its primary resource for income and economic development in Canada. And so we have a government that has purchased an, uh, an oil pipeline to prevent it from going under. And that oil pipeline right now in Western Canada, there are Indigenous people, Indigenous communities and allies that are fighting against it. They're fighting because they are concerned that the, the not only the oil that comes from the tar sands, so it's very heavy oil, not only that, but the dilutants that are put into it will do critically serious damage to the land, to the watersheds, to the ocean life, to the life in the rivers. And the goal is of the, the country and the, and the goal of the uh, industry supporting it is make more money, sell it. It's not for sale. It should not be for sale. Red Cloud is working to reverse the harms of cultural genocide. Its curriculum is built around Lakota cultural studies, and the Lakota language classes are required. The school believes grounding students in their cultural heritage is the key to solving pressing social issues facing the reservation. On Pine Ridge, Sierra is part of the first generation to openly learn the Lakota language and culture. But my Lakota language classes were my favorite classes. Like every day that was the class I looked forward to going to because I just loved learning like new things or how to say things differently. It's definitely important just because uh, we had our culture and language stripped away from us for so long that like finally being able to be back in it is like relieving. Uh, one of my teachers, uh, she's an elder and she would always um, talk to us about how there's a part in your brain that gets passed down history or passed down generations that has your culture and your language in it. And we all have that part of us in our brain. It just takes a while to unlock it. So I think that's why I love learning the language because I already know it. Like there's a part of me that's a part of my energy and my spirit that already knows it. And I always like love thinking about that, that like I'm not learning the language. I'm just refreshing myself on it. I love that thought that thought process. And I think that's why it's so important to get into it. Because as soon as you start learning about your culture and your heritage and your language, then everything will like, just make sense to you. I think overall in my community, that is definitely what we need. Now, I think I can speak a lot. But then I look at my niece who was in the immersion program, and she is nine years old, and she knows way more than I do. She can talk to me in full sentences. And I'm just like, trying to piece the words together. She's Seeing this younger generation, learning it like fluently, it's, I love seeing it. We are the first people here. Everyone else is out, is on our land, on indigenous land. And they need to understand why we are on reservations, why treaty rights exist and why, why there is scarce amount of indigenous people left. For Sierra, tribal sovereignty and ecology are inseparable. 
This is also at the heart of Pope Francis's teachings on the environment. He sees indigenous peoples as examples of how we can live in harmony with nature, people, and the creator. Quote, here there are neither exclusions nor those who exclude, Pope Francis writes. But indigenous communities need support and autonomy to make that vision a reality. That's why it's important for U.S. and Canadian governments to respect tribal treaties. I talked with our partner, Rodney Bordeaux, about this. Bordeaux is the president of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe, which neighbors the Pine Ridge Reservation. As president, he meets with the federal government, urging them to hold up their end of the treaties. Well, since uh, the um, tribe's uh, First Nations within the United States, we enjoy that federal trust relationship with the U U.S. government. Our main relationship is the federal government, not with the state. So when we come to Washington, we come here primarily to make sure that you know, they're living up to the treaty rights. You know, our ancestors signed the 1851 and 1868 treaties with the United States, basically for peace. We also gave up millions of acres of land in a promise that the federal government said, well, we'll make sure that you have uh, a good, safe place to live, that your needs are met in terms of our health care, uh, our nutrition, and just uh, education. So we want to make sure that they do not forget that. We do some lobbying with the federal government, making sure that they fund our programs. And we develop partnerships with other tribes so we can be more united and working together. These treaty rights are crucial in fighting against pipelines and mining. The Rosebud Sioux Tribe are suing the Trump administration over the Keystone XL pipeline. Environmentally, you know, you know this Keystone XL pipeline that's coming through our lands, and we're fighting it. Uh, we're in court right now, and basically we just want to protect our our sacred sites as well as our the burial sites that our ancestors were buried on our land. So we want to make make sure to protect them and our good quality drinking water. But we want to preserve um, preserve it for future generations because our constitution tells us that we whatever actions we do today make sure they're good enough to reflect and take care of the next seven generations. So it's, it's a, a process that's been passed on from our elders, ones that have gone on before us that we always have to look after, not only Mother Earth, but our future generations. And we, we gotta fight, because every time they get some new, I guess, uh, new methods of drilling, new methods of, uh, you know, like the fracking, that type of stuff, you know, they want every bit of peace out of the Mother Earth and. They don't seem to understand that, you know, if you kill Mother Earth, it's going to affect their, their generations, too. And I, I just can't see why, why they can't, they don't see that themselves. It's just money, money, money. And we're not here for that. We're trying to protect our people and protect uh, other people as well because they're affected by it. And we're just trying to educate them and hopefully try to get them to think our way because we, we have to. I mean, that's just our, our charge in life, you know, the way we were brought up and who we are as a people. When they come to the new world, it was beautiful. Nothing was damaged. So we'd like to keep it that way. So well, that's why we fight for our rights. For both Bordeaux and Sierra, environmental defense is part of their culture. While governments and corporations seek to control Earth's resources, many indigenous communities look toward the future. For my, for indigenous people, it gives me hope for like my indigenous people, hearing the children speak just hearing them talk so like talk so um effortlessly in Lakota in their language 
like that gives me a lot of hope that like we are we are being we are becoming strong and resilient again i think that's that's basically the one thing that the one thing that's always on my mind when i'm starting to doubt everything you know just doubt people or doubt like if we're ever if like environmental injustices or doubt like anything then i come back to that and come back to thinking like this younger generation is going to bring it up for us or we're bringing it up for them so they can fix everything because we were failed in the past so we got to bring it up for them and then they can prosper and do everything that they need to do everything that they should do so that's what keeps me on my on my path in life Right now, we're in the middle of the season of creation, which stretches from September 1st to October 4th. This month-long period of reflection calls Christians to renew their relationship with nature, humanity, and God. I think part of this reflection requires us in the globalized North, in industrialized countries, to seek forgiveness, to recognize how we have caused suffering in our own countries, and how our consumerist choices have driven exploitation in developing nations. Here's Sister Priscilla again. Oil is a big issue here in Canada. Industrialized countries see the earth, many of us see the earth, as a resource. And anything within the earth, whether that's oil or forest or fish, all of those are seen as resources for our economic and political benefit. And uh, that's the way we've been using them to the extent that we we are destroying the environment. And uh, we're doing it not only here in our own lands in the in the northern countries, but we're doing it in the Congo Basin. We're doing it in the Amazon. We're doing it in many places around the world, and destroying the environment there because of our greed and our individualism and our desire to our failure to see the common good because of the development in industry the development in manufacturing developments in technology we've come to think that we don't need a creator we don't need a guiding force in our lives we are it and we uh, in industrialized countries have come to think of ourselves as the head of the cosmic body, the earth, and uh, think we can control it and manage it. But I think in reality, we're the hands and feet of the earth. Creator is the head. And this cosmic earth, cosmic Christ, this mother earth, is the beloved of God. I thought a lot about this conversation with Sister Priscilla about how industrialized countries have appointed themselves managers of Earth. This power imbalance has amplified poverty and ecological destruction in our own communities and abroad. And we in North America are part of this system. We're part of a consumer society that, if unchecked, will destroy human and natural life. Places like the Black Hills, people like the Lakota. But our faith also gives us the tools to reverse this crisis. Just as Christ was the beloved Son of God, the cosmic Christ, the cosmic Earth, is the beloved of God. We have no right to destroy her. 
we have, I think we have the responsibility to be the hands that will heal, to be the feet that will walk with others who need the healing and to work to protect and safeguard and bring back to life the earth that we've tried so hard to destroy or managed so well to destroy. To learn more about the Jesuits and ecological justice, take part in our global prayer vigil for the season of creation. Visit breathingtogether.jesuits.global to learn more. Many thanks to everyone who contributed their time and expertise to this episode, including Paisley Sierra, Rodney Bordeaux, Father Peter Bisson, and Sister Priscilla Solomon. Thanks as well to John Seeley and Cecilia Calvo. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Dara Sump, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Mike Jordan-Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>